Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for joining us on this episode. Warren Graff is here with us today on the Ag Emerge podcast, and Warren is the Senior Vice President, Agriculture Market Manager at PNC Bank, and leads the ag banking group throughout the PNC footprint. Since joining PNC in 2007, he developed and implemented the mission and strategy for the PNC Ag Banking Group to provide farmers and agribusinesses with a full range of deposit, credit, and financially related services. Today, we tap into Warren's wealth of knowledge in agriculture, leadership, and financial experience as we discuss the current conditions, challenges, and opportunities we are seeing in agriculture. Warren, thanks for joining us. We'd love to begin our conversation with how agriculture has framed your story. Sure. Uh, I'm from a farm family in Northwest Missouri. Uh, my brother still runs our family's farming operation, and my nephew's in the process of assuming uh, operating control of the farming operation. So uh, I've been involved with agriculture my inter- entire life. Uh, was in the Peace Corps, was an agriculture teacher for a couple of years, uh, then got started working in the farm credit system. <clears throat> I worked in the uh, farm credit system for 18 years. Uh, 13 of those years in the St. Louis district, uh, which included Missouri, Illinois, and Arkansas, and then uh, five years out in the Wichita district. Uh, I decided to leave farm credit and try my hand at banking. I've been in commercial banking now for a little over 20 years. So I've seen uh, the ag economy and agribusinesses from both a production side, from a farm credit side, and from a banking side. So it uh, gives me a pretty good overview of the ag economy. Absolutely. And I I had a chance to meet Warren um, when he was a bank uh, president in Alito. Uh, and uh, that's where we got to meet each other. And uh, we served on the, or we're voluntold, I think is what you call that, uh, to be on the Chamber of Commerce together. And yeah. um, <laughs> anyway, we were uh, we were there at the, at the same time and we've just kept in, in touch over the years. And we had the pleasure of many of you may remember Warren when he presented at one of our first uh, national meetings that we had. Uh, talked a lot about the long-term trends and, and cycles and commodity crops. Uh, you, were, you were, I think, our favorite speaker out of everybody, Warren. So uh, we're oh, glad you could you. be back today. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, everybody really enjoyed what you, what you had to say. And um, you know, we, we certainly want to reserve the right to revisit those those long-term trends sometime. But uh, right now, as we're recording this, we're we're still in the middle of uh, significant uncertainty related to uh, uh, COVID-19. And uh, we really appreciate you being on here today to give us maybe uh, some of your ins- insights and perspective in, in regards to this. So uh, I'll happy to you. join you, Monty, and thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Well, we kind of um, wanted to make sure that we uh, 
covered all the bases, right? And and you did a nice job of working together to create an outline for this. And I, I just want to jump in and make sure we don't miss any important points as as we go through uh, this discussion today. But you know, really, um, you know, one of the things we want to dive into is on, on the COVID nineteen. Uh, is it going to have uh, negative impacts on global food? Not only uh, availability, but more importantly, security and what that looks like. Well, uh, both lives, people's lives and livelihoods are at risk from this pandemic. Uh, as everyone knows, the disease is spreading quickly. Uh, it's no longer a regional issue. It's a global problem calling for a global response. Uh, we know that it will eventually retreat, but we don't know how fast this will happen. We also know that the shock is somewhat unusual as it affects significant elements of both food supply and demand. Uh, we risk a looming food crisis and there's beginning to be some news about uh, some of the meatpacking plants being shut down. Uh, so unless measures are taken fast to protect the most vulnerable parts of the food chain uh, and keep the global food supply chain alive, uh, the pandemic impacts could be across the entire food system. Some examples are border closures, quarantines, market supply chain and trade disruptions could restrict people's access to sufficient and the diverse and nutritious sources of food, especially in countries hit hard by the virus or already affected by high levels of food insecurity. Uh, just add a note there that it certainly had a uh, impact on trade. Uh, we're all wondering when's trade going to get back to normal. Uh, but there's really no need for the world to panic. Uh, globally, there's enough food for everyone. Policymakers around the world just need to be careful not to repeat the mistakes we made during the 2007 and 2008 food crisis and, and turn this health crisis into an entirely avoidable food crisis. As the virus spreads, Cases mount and measures tighten. There are countless ways, however, that the global food system will be tested and strained in the coming weeks and months. As if now, disruptions are minimal as food supply has been adequate and markets have been stable so far. However, we are already seeing challenges in terms of logistic bottlenecks, in other words, not being able to move food from point A to point B, and likely there is less food of high value commodities like fruits and vegetables being produced and shipped. Uh, you know, we've seen some of the farmers dumping milk. We've seen uh, news stories about farmers plowing under some crops, and that's primarily a logistics problem. As of now and moving into April, we expect disruptions in the food supply chains. For example, restrictions of movement as well as basic aversion behavior by workers may impede farmers from farming and food processors who handle the vast majority of agricultural products from processing. Again, consider the meat processing plants that are heavily labor dependent and the, the negative impact that COVID-19 has had on their workers. Mm -hmm. Shortages of fertilizers, veterinary medicines, and other inputs could affect agricultural production. Closures of restaurants and less frequent grocery shopping diminish demand for fresh produce and fishery products affecting producers and suppliers. Sectors in agriculture, such as fisheries and aquaculture, 
are particularly affected by restrictions on tourism, closure of restaurants and cafe and school meals suspension. Mm -hmm. In any scenario, the most affected will be the poorest and most vulnerable segments of our population. Countries in protracted crises also suffer from underinvestment in public health, which will amplify the, the uh, impact of the COVID-19. Fascinating, really, Warren. I mean, that, that's a great overview of, of, of what's going on there in relation to food. And, and you're right, uh, our producers who are uh, working with produce crops Typically, about 50% of uh, veg crops, uh, such as you know lettuce, romaine, uh, coleslaw, or I'm sorry, cabbage to make coleslaw and such, uh, would typically go through the food service distribution arena. And uh, we're seeing about 50% of those crops at the latter end of the Yuma harvest were disbunded or uh, you know terminated, just because there's those even though people want them, the traditional channel to get it to them, you know, half would go through the grocery store, that half is still going there, but the half that would go through, like you were saying, uh, food service, so schools and restaurants and, uh, you know, even uh, hotels and tourism, all of that market, it's just, we got to find a way to get, we've got the food, right? You just got to find a way to redirect it uh, to people. And um, exactly. I've heard, have you heard uh, some of these like Cisco and some of these other things are, are doing more of a, a food pickup option uh, if they can to, to connect with customers or is there a way to change that quickly change how that distribution model is working? Well, the, the distribution models are definitely being impacted. Uh, we have customers who are seeing huge increases in their online direct consumer shipments. Uh, particularly for high-value commodities. And as you pointed out, uh, companies that deal with a lot of, of bulk distribution to uh, high-volume restaurants, school systems, colleges, other institutional-type operations, uh, they're going more to, as you pointed out, direct pickup kind of opportunities, or they're putting in place additional uh protective processes to protect their employees and the people who are buying product from them uh, from potential uh, coronavirus infection. So the, the whole delivery process that we're using is changing. And uh, I have heard some stories say that we're moving forward three to five years and ramping up more use of more technology for the delivery and supply of food products. It's really poured fuel on that fire, hasn't it? Yes, it has. You mentioned on the input side affecting uh, farmers. Uh, you know, we, we are in the fertilizer business. We saw this coming. We, we did advance uh, many of our, we front loaded our uh, system to make sure that if there was shortages in transportation from sick truckers or plant production or those kind of things, we could get it out there. And our, our big spring push has had really nominal effect. Uh, We've seen some things on quality assurance, you know, where people in the lab, they would only allow so many people working in a lab that would delay shipments. But so far, as of April, uh, where we're at here, 23rd, uh, 24th, and and we're, you lose track of the days in this COVID thing, Warren. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, things seem pretty good, uh, you know, for the row crop uh, situation. But uh, I think we still have to, uh, effects coming. Uh, so, very good point. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I haven't heard of any problems with shipments of chemicals or fertilizers that would negatively impact crop production. 
I have heard though that for livestock feed, uh, we're seeing some challenges with deliveries of, of foodstuffs. Uh, we, we have one customer who does a lot of logistics arrangements and transportation of uh, specialized uh, additives for animal feed. And uh, he's having trouble sourcing a lot of that now. A lot of the manufacturers are having problems manufacturing product or uh, they're wanting to retain ownership of it in case they can't supply their traditional customers. So there's uh, right now, my sense of the situation is that there's more problems with delivery of uh, livestock additive, livestock feed additives and, and nutrients and things like that than there is uh, challenges on the crop production side. And the output too, on like you were saying, on the livestock side, uh, you know, there's there's chickens and hogs. They can't wait forever before they they go to heaven. So uh, that's a that's a real real issue. So yeah, yeah, harvesting back, of uh, harvesting of livestock is going to be a challenge. Yes. So to back up a, a step or two, and you know, your your experience in uh, Peace Corps and and have more of a global view on these kind of things. I think it's important for us to to think about that too. And I know one of the things you, that uh, we wanted to visit about was just you know whose whose food security and livelihoods are going to be you know most at risk uh, due to this pandemic. What what do you see on on more of a macro scale? Well, on, on a global scale, uh, we're seeing even challenges. One of the biggest challenges that I've observed is international shipments via ocean-going vessels. Uh, there's a lot of them that are, of course, crewed by specialized staff, and there's concerns on those large vessels about uh, people becoming sick while they're transporting goods from one country to another country. So shipping is uh, one of the major areas that we have some concerns about. And what impact will that have on the ability of countries like the United States that are uh, producing excess quantities, I should say excess quantities, but abundant quantities of, of foodstuffs that get shipped around the world? Uh, are we going to be able to even deliver those to countries in need, regardless of their ability to pay for the goods once they arrive? So it's not just exactly a supply and demand problem, but it's also the logistics of, of moving commodities uh, from one part of America to another part of America or from America to China or Japan or Europe or South Africa or wherever else we may be exporting the goods. Just logistics and being able to move those commodities is, is becoming a challenge. So one of the things I know we, we visit about ahead of time was a little bit on, you know, nearly, not quite, but nearly a billion, you know, people worldwide, you know, mm -hmm. are experiencing hunger. I mean, they, uh, they, the total calories they have available to them on a daily basis is below, you know, the recommended uh, amount. And, you know, you just talked about how the logistics is affecting this, you know, within our own country. How much is that going to affect these these areas that are that are always on you know that are below the uh, or chronic hunger? You know what do you what do you see happening there? How much is that going to expand, and what does that mean really for you know stability uh, of those those countries and, and such? 
Well, that's a very good question, Monty, and I don't know that I'm particularly uh, knowledgeable enough to, to give a definitive answer to that, other than we all know that people who are just have been scraping by for years and years and years, if there's any disruption to their supply chain uh, and they don't have food for even a few days or a week or two, it's going to have a greater impact on them than it would here in the United States where we have abundant supplies of, of food and, and uh, commodities. So, uh, you know, my reading of what the UN is talking about, the food and agricultural organizations around the globe, is that, uh, you know, they are very concerned about some of these low-income countries that have been relying a lot on foreign aid just to continue to feed the people. Uh, is that going to impact uh, not only economic stability, but political stability in some of these countries? Because uh, when people get hungry, they, they tend to become angry very quickly, and they begin to, to blame the politicians who are, are running the country. So, uh, Will that happen? I don't know, but that's certainly a concern that I've heard espoused by UN and other global organizations. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, when you when you think about it, the the impact of the virus, which the virus itself, we, we don't want to downplay it by any means. We, we all know probably someone who has been uh, lost a loved one associated with the virus, but the uh, the, the reaction that we've had to the virus uh, economically is going to have a tremendous impact on, you know, uh, some of these lower, lower income below the uh, food poverty line. Uh, in addition to our own, you know, economics that uh, uh, we certainly see happening when you, when you put pause on the economy for two months, um, you know, that's uh, close to 20% of your production in a year. Yeah. So. Well, and, and we're beginning to see that in the news, even here in the United States, people are beginning to demand that uh, the states begin to open back up uh, to allow people to go to work, to begin to generate their own income. Uh, and, and that's certainly uh, an impact of political decisions to shelter in place uh, for the coronavirus. People are getting to the point where they're realizing that there is a economic price as well as a cultural price for that kind of isolation. So people are going to get to the point where they basically demand the opportunity to go back to work, even at the risk of potentially catching the virus, just so that they can generate economic income for themselves to sustain their, their livelihood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and in your business, uh, being in the banking industry, I mean, right now you, you automatically got uh, uh, your industry got voluntold uh, to be to administer, you know, a round of essentially uh, support mechanisms to to keep businesses afloat. I mean, uh, uh, banking was was drafted to to, in my opinion, I you know, you can correct me if, if you think I'm completely off base here, but you know, bankers were basically drafted to to work for the government to distribute money to keep uh, keep businesses afloat. Uh, yeah. I mean, that I has agree to be a tremendous burden on you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I know just within PNC that there are people from all different areas of the bank who have been put on temporary assignment purely to work on the SBA Paycheck Protection Program. 
I mean, even myself, I'm doing underwriting and eligibility determinations for uh, PPP loans, as well as, you know, many, many people from auditors to compliance to uh, investment real estate to corporate bankers to you know, just everybody in the bank has been platooned to work on this project because it is such a huge undertaking. And, and you're right, essentially the banks have been drafted by the government to assure that this this uh, money flows out through the us to the economy. Uh, you, know, you know, granted, we're getting paid to do it, but at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of effort and tremendous amount of people engagement that has to happen in order to make it happen. So everybody would like to get their money yesterday, but unfortunately, it's a, it's quite a lengthy process, and, and SBA took quite a bit of time to come up with the guidelines for us uh, to use what information was that they were going to require, uh, what the terms and conditions were for this money. Uh, and even today, as we're getting ready to launch a second tranche of, of loan applications and submit those to SBA, we still have no idea of how we're going to handle the forgiveness of these loans that are being today. We're still waiting on additional guidance from SBA on how things are going to work later this week, next week, and then in eight weeks, whenever uh, the the term of the, those loans begins to expire. Well, we, uh, we thank you for what you're dealing with right now. Uh, uh, we oftentimes have a saying, every day is a new day at, at ASN. And uh, I think for sure right now, you can say every day is a new day uh, at PNC for you. That's, uh, uh, I mean, it's a, it sounds like a real full court press to make this happen. I, I can't imagine the volume of stuff you're dealing with. What, what would you say, how many years worth of loan applications did you receive in a, in a week's time? Oh, probably 80 years worth. <laughs> oh, uh, my goodness. You know, and, and that, that may be a little bit on the conservative side because, uh, you know, if, you know, I, you know, I don't know for sure exactly what the numbers were, but let's say we processed a thousand a year in the past SBA loans and we're over 80,000 applications just here. So that, that was the quick math that I did. And, and those are very rough, rough numbers. So please don't hold sure. me to those. No. We won't, but it, it just goes to show that it is an an extreme uh, workload that you're that you're dealing with right now. So, uh, yeah, uh, and, and really, we need to we need to be thankful for the work you guys are doing because it's it's kind of a kind of unsung heroes. But the capital that you're freeing up right now is going to allow small businesses to keep people on their team through this uncertainty, you know, it's certainly yeah. going to encourage them to do that. So it's, sure. um, it's a great step. And, and, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, political football messes to deal with through this process, but, uh, um, it's good to see it getting done and, and moving forward. Uh, well, hindsight's 2020, right? We look, look back three years from now, we'll know if it was the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we appreciate everyone's patience out there, all of our customers. I know everybody is under a tremendous amount of stress and strain, not only from concerns about the virus, but just economically and wanting to know that they have funds available. And sure. uh, all banks uh, are, are going as fast as they can and, and getting 
day-by-day -day guidance from SBA as to how to implement this program. Uh, and, and we certainly want to do it to support our customers and the entire economy. Uh, but, you know, we just, we just hope everybody will understand we're, we're going just as fast as we physically can and that we have devoted tremendous resources to, yeah. to work. Uh, I mean, at PNC, we've even gone to working three shifts just so we can have more people with access to all the computer systems and information so that we can process as many of these applications as we possibly can. And, you know, they used to talk about bankers hours being from nine to three. Uh, unfortunately, we've gone to 24 seven in light of this, uh, this uh, event. Uh, well, being a farm boy, uh, you're you're used to it, but I imagine managing some of those other uh, coworkers are are probably wondering what this is all about. Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, you know, this is this is like uh, spring planting or fall harvest on steroids, where you're just you're doing everything that you can to get the crops in the ground as quickly as you can, or get them harvested in as good a condition yep. as you can. So the we all coming. work hard during those times, and. Uh, that's kind of what it feels like around here, plus yeah. some. <laughs> and in addition, you get to add the self-employed and independent contractors and farmers to the mix here coming very soon. So, yeah, yeah, I'm glad we stuck this in because otherwise we may not have been able to talk to you for a few months. So, yeah, it could be. <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, there's a, you got that under the uncertainties of what's going on in, in funding out there. Um, and those kind of things and market uncertainties and all those, what, let's, let's, um, how do you see this pandemic impacting American agriculture? I mean, what, what are going to be, we've got the, the things in the moment, right? But what, what does this point to, or how do you see this affecting uh, agriculture uh, going forward? Okay. Well, first of all, times like these remind us of, all of us of the importance of ensuring our nation's food security. And we want to assure all Americans that production agriculture remains on call 24 seven. I mean, we, we are a basic industry within this country. I'm reminded of and grateful for the tireless hours our farmers and ranchers put in all year long to supply healthy, affordable food to be processed and packaged so stores can restock shelves, produce bins and meat and dairy cases. So. Uh, first of all, a big thank you uh, out there. Uh, as a result of, of what's going on, uh, you know, my particular concern is blockages to transport routes uh, that may cause us not to be able to deliver supplies that farmers need or to move the crops and, and livestock once they're, once they're produced. Uh, the other big thing that we're concerned about, that I'm concerned about, is shortages of labor. Uh, agriculture needs a lot of seasonal labor in order to help uh, get the crops in, get the crops harvested, process the food once it's been harvested, and, and get moving through the wholesale and retail distribution channels. Uh, what we're not sure about is what's going to happen with prices. Uh, you know, that's one big thing. Unfortunately, crop farmers have been seeing corn and soybean prices decline quite a bit over the last several weeks. Uh, we're seeing livestock prices uh, being very volatile also. So we're not sure yet, but certainly the latest information I've seen shows that USDA previously was forecasting 
some improvement in net farm income for 2020, but that's pretty been, pretty well been wiped out. And we're looking at uh, losses, unfortunately, based upon uh, the current price outlooks and what we're seeing in the future of commodity markets. So uh, I'm a little concerned economically <clears throat> right now about our farm customers and what's happening, uh, particularly with prices and, and being able to move the crops and, the, and get the crops in the ground. So uh, certainly a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, uh, anxiousness and stress in the farm economy these days. Mm -hmm. And when you when you look at how you know we've evolved in our in our agricultural production system, you know, in in the pursuit of um, economics of scale, it naturally has caused us to become you know larger and larger, uh, more and more commoditized, you know, ubiquitous, more and more centralized, you know, in in, mm -hmm. in processing. Just because you know one one ethanol plant doing whatever 120 million gallons is more efficient than one doing 40,000 gallons just as an example uh it, it doesn't require that much extra uh, labor and capital to produce four times as much same way as uh you know a, a processing plant doesn't you know a processing plant that you know small local producer might do just small volumes but you got to have thousands of them across the the landscape and people just don't want to do that work you know so it's mm -hmm. kind of naturally gone to larger and larger systems but you know i think you know with the disruptions the disruptions that you're talking about uh you know milk being dumped and the uh, produce being uh, put under and you know now ethanol plants shutting down because uh oil uh futures have have gone negative there's not many not as many people driving gas consumptions down all these kind of things um how can how can distribution channels be changed or become more flexible in the future? I mean, people are still eating, right? They're just eating in different places. Um, you know, the school lunch program is at the kitchen table, right? Not, not at the yeah. cafeteria. And that's where 20% of fluid milk goes to, uh, you know, restaurants aren't consuming fresh produce. How do, how do produce farmers get connected to the home better? Um, you know, how, how can we reestablish connections to where people can eat more wholesome in, in, in a different way? Because even though we're, we're at where we're at today with lockdown, uh, I just don't see us returning to 100% of before. You know, like 9-11, like when that happened, a lot of things changed. And, and we've returned close, but not to the way it was before. And, and this is, I think, so how, you know, how do you see these connections and channels and how can farmers be a part of that instead of just giving away 92% of the food dollar to all the intermediaries between the farmer and the consumer? Well, a, a lot of the uh, companies that we work with and, and that I talk to in leadership, their the big word is sustainability and being sure that we reduce our carbon footprint and being sure that we're remaining the demands of the consumer in what we produce and that the farmer produce it uh, not only economically efficiently, but environmentally sustainable. So uh, as I have viewed uh, a lot of the work that's being done around food security and food sustainability and environmental sustainability, 
probably the, the one big thing that I would say I, that farmers will likely have to adapt to is use of more data and more analytics in how they go about running and managing their farming operations. Because it doesn't make any difference if you're a milk producer or you're a vegetable or fruit producer or corn and soybean producer, knowing and having a better idea of what future demand may be for different types of commodities, uh, being able to be transparent in your production processes and how the, the commodities that you produce flow through the processing system to be converted into food items and then flow through the wholesale retail channels to consumers. That whole process is undergoing a huge change. change. Uh, and we need as, as a producer to be able to better understand that and more uh, adeptly work with uh, those companies, whether they be privately owned businesses, publicly traded businesses or cooperatives to work with them to assure that we understand that entire food value chain and how we can best work with that food value chain. Uh, it doesn't mean that we produce for maximum production anymore. It means we focus on what is economically efficient and what is environmentally sustainable and use data to support those decisions so that we enhance the profitability of the farming operations and their ability to meet the expectations of the consuming public. Uh, there's a lot of work being on, gone on in process by companies like Walmart or Syngenta or Bungie or you know, many of the other companies that are involved with, with agricultural production and uh, different types of agribusinesses. And they have developed full departments within those organizations to focus solely on sustainability and using satellite imaging uh, to evaluate the health and well-being of crops. Uh, to So farmers, if they're not using some sort of uh, you know, efficient production system, variable rate application, variable rate seeding, using modern uh, genetics, uh, for the crops that they're producing so that they're assured that they're able to say to the consumer, hey, this is what I'm doing on my farm to be environmentally aware of what I do to the climate to assure that I'm minimizing any potential runoff or percolation of chemicals and fertilizers you know, by surface water or percolating through the soil into the groundwater. You know, all those things are going to make a difference going forward and we need data, we need the ability to monitor all that in order to, to show, to be transparent, to communicate how we're being uh, environmentally sensitive. Does that address your question? Yeah, and, and really, so what you're saying is the past, the commodity was, it had to be whatever, 15% moisture, less than a certain percent damage, less than a certain amount of foreign material. And if you hit that, there's pounds, you get paid. And that's right. what we could measure at that time when the yellow number two corn was developed. Now, today, with information technology, we can get all of these other attributes on there, uh, such as what has it done for carbon capture? Uh, did you use no pesticides or less harmful pesticides? Uh, you know, did you use no-till techniques or... Um, 
you know, all these kind of attributes that are within there that, you know, customer A might be just interested in, in the basic commodity product, get it as cheap as possibly can. I don't care about all the frill. But then customer B might be really key on chemical impact. And customer C might be uh, interested in, in carbon capture and ecosystem services. And, and, and customer D wants all of the above, you know. Um, but it's a way to, if you're sensing and collecting all of the data as the farmer is doing it, then he can capture the value of those production practices that he's, that he's doing as he sells it into the market, correct? Correct. That's what you're yeah, saying, the need it, for that data. Yes, and, and some of these companies, uh, you know, I have talked to a couple of them that, that there is money available in the form of carbon credits for carbon capturing uh, in the fields. So just like, you know, we had to adapt to hybridize corn and soybeans, we had to uh, adapt to GMO, uh, organisms to enhance productivity, drought tolerance, insect resistance. Uh, I think the next thing that we're going to be seeing is how are farmers uh, able to document those activities that you just summarized, and is there a way for them to get paid for doing that? Because these companies, the consumers are saying, hey, we're willing to pay premiums to the farmers if we know that they're being environmentally responsible and how they produce the crops and livestock uh, that we're consuming. Well, excellent. I mean, that that's the whole kind of where we see the future of agriculture going to is the new ag paradigm has to incorporate soil health and all these things, but it also has to bring that value that the farmer's creating back to him instead of just letting it get lost. And the way that's going to happen is through Internet of Things sensors to populate the analytics automatically and in an unbiased way. It, mm-hmm. It's going to require the, the artificial intelligence to be able to bring in all these data points for the analysis and, and cloud computing of these things. And then on the on the other hand, it's going to have to have uh, a decision-making profile of the consumer. You know, a consumer is going to have to say, here's my budget and here's where I want my dollars to vote for first, second, third, fourth, and 40th. Or, or AI learns that person's patterns and then automatically connects, you know, from farmer to consumer through processors, what not only fits their nutrition needs, but also their, their value voting needs, if you will, um, mm-hmm. their, their ancillary needs. So I, I'm excited because the technology is going to allow us to do that instead of being this, you know, commodity that just you know, somebody growing great corns put together with somebody that's got, yeah, you know, low test weight corn and, and, and it blends at the elevator and you make a number two product, you know, we're going to be able to keep that really nutrient dense, high test weight corn, and it's going to go for food processing here. Uh, and, and then others going to go to maybe feed or ethanol there. Um, it's exciting really. And, and what I like uh, what you said, early on is that this fuel on the fire here, uh, this is, we are just accelerating the change to this newer paradigm. And the, the, the modern frontier in, in agriculture is not the race through Oklahoma to, to stake your plot of land, right? It's the race to preserving these quality attributes and connecting it to the customer. That, that technology is the 
kind of the, the new frontier. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree because because essentially what what I interpret you're saying, Monty, is in many cases I, I would use the example of identity preservation of agricultural yeah. commodities. And yeah. can you, can we use, for example, blockchain technology to say this corn uh, that was used to make these food products, whatever they might be, was grown on these farms, uh, was not artificially dried or preserved, was shipped direct to the company that processed the corn into taco chips or tortillas or, right. you know, cereal or, you know, whatever the case may be. So that when that consumer purchases that commodity, if they want to, they can say, okay, that corn came from Monty Botton's farm. And uh, here's the cultural practices that he used to produce that corn. Here's how he was being uh, environmentally responsible in the production of that corn. Uh, did you use filter strips? Do you have a plan in place to uh, to capture carbon into the soil for the production of that corn? Uh, are you are you avoiding deforestation or any anything else that would contribute to soil runoff or chemical runoff or fertilizer runoff? You know, the consumers are becoming much more in tune with with agriculture, and they want to know those kinds of things. You know, when my grandparents were farming our home farm, you know, a, a vast majority of the population lived in the country and they knew about farming. They knew how things were produced. Today, we have less than, what, 2% of the population that's involved with production agriculture. People are two and three generations separated from family members who had some knowledge of farming and agriculture, and they want to know why does what that farmer do make sense? Is that farmer being environmentally responsible? Are they able to economically survive with the practices that they're doing? What can I as a consumer do to help sustain that food value chain from the farmer to the consumer? Yeah. Yeah, I think know your farmer, know your food has just received high octane fuel. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty exciting. Well, one of the things you brought up earlier, Warren, was, was you know, hygiene and worker availability, worker safety, and those kind of things. Uh, is COVID-19 going to lead to more automation or robotics in, in harvesting? Because, you know, in the past, it's been really limited by costs compared to labor costs. But now, all of a sudden, is there an additional liability cost that these companies face if they have maybe a sick worker picking produce or they got a sick worker cutting meat to where now that cost of not only the worker but cost of liability is up to the point where and plus they can't produce in their factories because the six foot separation where now we're going to see just a uh, fast furious uh, run toward uh, automation technologies well uh, i will address that from two aspects monty uh, one is uh, processing and manufacturing of food items once it leaves the farm. Uh, a lot of those types of plants like meat processing plants or uh, crop processing plants uh, have been 
highly automated over the last 30 or 40 years. So even though there, there's still uh, a lot of labor used in some of them, uh, processing and harvesting poultry, hogs, cattle, uh, it, it, it demands uh, human processes to, to look at the way the animals is, needs to be processed. So while there's going to continue to be efforts to automate, I, those types of processes have gone un, undergone so much technological innovation over the last several decades. I, I don't know that I see a lot of additional progress made in those arenas uh, because I'm, I'm not sure the cost of the investment in that technology is going to be more efficient than continuing to use labor in those kinds of activities, okay? But what I am seeing, which is more on the production side of the processes, I do see more technology and innovation being used in that arena. Uh, I talk to a lot of companies that are developing robots to uh, identify, let's use one that I looked at recently, uh, runs by solar panel. It has visual weed recognition and spot sprays individual weeds to kill them and has a variety of different kinds of herbicides that it uses so that a farmer, instead of broadcasting a herbicide across an entire field, would invest in this robot and this robot would only apply the, the correct amount of herbicide for that specific weed in a field. So you significantly reduce your cost of herbicide applications. Same thing works in insecticides too. So I, I guess I see more automation and technology and data being used uh, and more advances in the production side than I do in the processing and manufacturing side because there's a, a, a lot, there's a very broad footprint and a lot of acres out there where we could gain economic efficiency by implementing uh, technology to reduce our costs of growing those, those crops or the livestock. Here's another example for you. We have, uh, we feed a lot of cattle out in Oklahoma Panhandle, Texas Panhandle and Southwest Kansas. One of the things from a banking perspective, whether you're in the farm credit system or in the bank, is you have to go out and inspect that livestock to assure that your collateral exists. But one of the companies that we're talking to has developed a technology where they fly drones over the feed yards, uh, take pictures of each individual pen, and provide a collateral report to the lender that says, on this date at this time, there were this many head of cattle in this feed yard. Uh, and, you know, based upon current market prices, this is the value of your collateral in that pen. So that the lender, instead of having to send somebody out there and to go to the, to the feedlot, climb up on the fence and count the number of cattle in a pen and maybe have to do it two or three times just to make sure that they didn't miss one, uh, it could be replaced by drone technology and information technology. Yep, exactly. And, and, and a lot of times uh, the innovation, uh, prog progression of innovation occurs in those incremental steps too. It's not, you know, huge leaps. It's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. taking a drone and then they can get a count. And then the next thing is going to be modeling the size of the animal to get the weight 
you know, and, and, and those kind of things. So very, very interesting. Well, Kim, any, anything you'd, you'd like to, to add in here? And I, I got one more, one more question for Warren after, after you. Well, I was just, I'm just sitting here thinking about, as you said, you know, we were putting fuel on the fire. The word that comes to mind is there's just a lot of opportunities here to learn from, to make changes, to implement some stuff at a lot faster pace than I think we probably initially were moving at. And so baptism by fire can be painful, but can also really affect some significant changes. And as I think about all the topics that we've talked about, I think we've touched on just about every significant area that we focus on at Ag Emerge, changing that that ag paradigm um, blockchain and, and utilizing this information. So it's exciting to see the directions that, that we can go um, based out of an unfortunate uh, situation that sort of drove it. Times of stress in the egg economy lead to a lot of innovation, a lot of people coming up with new ways to do things and making it less uh, less costly. So uh, I'm very excited about what's going on from a, from a data and analytics and technology use of production agriculture, because these are the times when we see lots of new ideas, lots of new concepts develop that will benefit agriculture for decades to come. So I know it's tough. I'm not uh, discounting the, the challenges that we face by any means, but out of periods of stress usually come great innovations and great movements forward. And that, that's very true. That, that's what I wanted to conclude with is, you know, farmers are, are resilient. Uh, agribusinesses are resilient. Uh, everybody in the food uh, system is very resilient. And we faced challenges before, and this won't be the last one, uh, but each one of these challenges always makes us better. So that's a great point, Warren. I, I really appreciate that really message of hope that you're giving us. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, a lot of farm families and a lot of farming operations have been around for generations, and they survive by being innovative, by coming up with new ideas, and by finding ways to th- do things better, quicker, faster, more economically, and certainly more environmentally sustainable. So uh, that's who we are. We adapt to change, uh, and we will be successful. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us, uh, and, and I'm looking, and you're probably about to report to uh, third shift detail um, at, at the bank right now. Are you on third shift tonight? Uh, well, luckily, I've been uh, able to work day shifts, but my day shifts have been getting uh, more and more hours, so uh, that we're encouraged to work as much as we can. <laughs> well, we certainly thank you for taking time to, to visit with us, Warren. It was great to hear your insights and uh, uh, your, your perspective on things. Happy to visit with you again, my friend. Take care. Thank you, Warren. Bye.